You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We find ourselves today in James chapter 4 as we are going through an entire book of the Bible. And what we believe is that God's Word is perfect and it speaks perfectly to our circumstances and every time. Last week, James introduced us to this theme. We either live kingdom down or hell up. And he says that kingdom down living starts with wisdom that comes from above. It comes from heaven. And then he Contrast that by saying that hell up living is that which is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. A direct quote from James 3.15. And so this theme in James 3 gets carried over to James 4, and it's this. You and I make decisions constantly. Do we invite the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, down into our lives... Or are we pulling up the culture and the pain of hell into our lives? So where we find ourselves today in James chapter 4, we're going to do a bad news, good news. And we're first going to learn more about what this living hell up life is all about. So James starts chapter 4 with this great question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, we tend to think of Satan and demons and the kingdom of darkness and evil being unleashed on the earth in, in movies such as The Exorcist, Exorcist and, and Head Spinning. But the truth is, oftentimes, it's just in our relationships that it's unleashed. It's just people literally putting hell into each other's lives. So he goes on. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, strife, division against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So he's talking about living hell up. Again, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. You're pulling hell up into your life, into your marriage, your your family, your relationships, your generations of legacy. And so oftentimes our warfare, our conflict, our spiritual problems manifest themselves in relationships. We have a relationship with God. We have relationships with each other. And Satan comes to attack that relationship we have with God and attack the relationships we have with one another. And it makes life here feel a little bit like hell. And so he asks the question, what causes the fights and quarrels? Now, I know this is an old book written about 2,000 years ago. So do we still have fights and quarrels on earth? 
Oh, yeah. And we now take these fights and quarrels and we plug them into the internet so that they're as painful as possible and they're immediate, they are constant, they are public, they are global. He asks the question, what's the root cause? What's the cause behind the cause of the fights and quarrels? Now, what happens when you and I are annoyed? Someone gets on our last nerve and we are sick of them, we're done with them. And if we're asked that question, we immediately go to our terrible tale. Oh, let me tell it. I'm, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you who they are. Let me tell you what they said. Let me tell you what they did. And then we just let everyone know of our short, their shortcomings and flaws and failures. But what James does here, when he asks the question, he doesn't allow us to answer it. He has God answer the question. And what God says is, before you look at them, look at you. Before you talk about what they contributed, consider what you contributed. What causes fights and quarrels among you, he says, is oftentimes more about what's in here than what's out there. He says, your desires are at war within you. You have these desires that you can't satisfy and you murder. That doesn't mean just literal. That can be with your words. And here he uses words in this text like passions, desires, depends upon your translation. That, the root word of that is where we get the word hedonism from. Hedonism is whatever feels good, do it. You do you. Hedonism is simply whatever feels good, that's what you go with. Whatever you think, yeah, yeah. Whatever you feel, satisfy it. Let's be honest. If you did everything that you wanted to do, you would destroy you. We oftentimes say that Jesus saves us from hell, which is true. Jesus also saves you from you. He saves me from me, and that's a full-time job. Here's the good news. God can change all of this. He can take out your old heart and give you a new heart. He can take out your old nature and give you a new nature. Take out your old desires, give you new desires. Take out your old spirit, give you the Holy Spirit. Take out the old you, give you a new you. That's exactly what Jesus Christ does. And so what Christianity becomes then, it's about new passions, new desires. You see, Christianity isn't about the things that you have to do that you literally don't want to do. It's about the things you want to do because the new you wants to do them. He goes on to say that you covet, you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What he says that brings up a lot of that hell up living into our lives is selfishness. Something good happens to you and that triggers a bad feeling in me and coveting is the result. Now, we may call that in our world advertising, marketing, social media. He calls it, the Bible calls it, 
coveting and selfishness. He already talked about bitter envy and jealousy. That was last week. And this is the whole point of social media. It seems as if everyone on social media breaks one of the Ten Commandments and at least lies a lot of the time so that other people will be selfish and jealous and want what you have leads to quarreling and fighting. And some of you still think you're adorable. We love you. We're glad you're here. You've been lied to. We call it education where they tell you that we are good people getting better. For how many of you does that not correspond with reality? You look at the world. Are people getting better? Things getting better? No. If anything, I think they should go into schools and take that evolutionary chart that's usually hanging in there and flip it around. Because we started as image bearers of God. And when all is said and done, we're going to end up like monkeys in the zoo flinging poo at each other. So let me, let me ask you parents, do you have to teach your children pretty much everything? Yes. So you teach them to talk, to read and write. How about to walk? Or this one. Do you have to teach them to be selfish? It's interesting. Just think why you don't have to teach a kid to be selfish. Because it's just part of human nature. It's part of what, how they're hardwired, their fallen nature. In fact, right now, in our nursery, there are two kids in there. Not yours, of course. There are two kids in there, one in one corner, one in the other. One sees the other one with a truck. And he goes over there. He takes the truck, hits the kid with it, and walks over to his other side. You know the difference between a terrorist and a child? Size. (laughs) It's the only difference. From the earliest days, we covet. There is something in here where we have these passions and desires that, that make it come out like this. I win, you lose. You give, I take. I rule, You are ruled over. And James says there's something broken and flawed in here. It's not the way that God made us, but it's the way that sin made us. And so the point is, we don't need God to just make us better. We need God to make us new. It's not about self-help. It's about God's help. It's not about trying better. It's about God making you completely different. And he's talking here about being honest. We tend to be honest about everyone else. We need to be honest with ourselves. Remember, God is a loving, gracious, generous father. He already told us in chapter one, James did, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, comes down from the father. And sometimes you are receiving things from God, but you are wasting them on your own selfish passions and desires. So we've all done this. We tend to think, I need more money. And sometimes God is saying, I gave you enough money. 
You just misspent it. You see, the concept of stewardship is that God is the owner. We manage and steward all that we have that God has given to us. So we have a certain number of days, a certain number of dollars, a certain number of deeds that make up the sum total of our life. All of it belongs to God. And it is managed or stewarded by you. 25% of Jesus' teachings were on stewardship. How to invest your life rather than how to waste your life. And sometimes what we do, we get jealous because we have thoughts that, man, they've got something I don't have. And we get angry at God because we think he's failed us. And so we live in a country where people don't sleep enough. They, don't, they spend too much. They get exhausted and overworked and frustrated and burned out. And they start blaming God rather than asking God, hey, God, what am I supposed to do and not be doing so that I can put my life together in a way that is beneficial to you and others and pleases you? beyond measure. And then he goes on to talk about, and this is strong language. He says, you adulterous people. Yes, there is a marriage analogy here about someone or something taking God's place. So let me tell you how marriage works in Christianity. On July 9th, 1983, I married my dream girl. <laughs> Her name is Lori. Next month, we will celebrate our 40th anniversary. Hard to imagine since I'm only 50. <laughs> I love her with all my heart. She's my best friend. Our marriage relationship is what the Bible calls a covenant. It's unique. It's special. It's sacred. I don't have another relationship like it. So that being said, our relationship is supposed to be sacred. It's supposed to be intimate. It's supposed to be uh, protected and safeguarded. The big idea is the Bible talks about Jesus as the groom. The church is the bride. And what God wants with you is a covenant marriage with him, like the relationship of unity and loyalty and what happens in a marriage. But here's the problem. Most of us want a relationship with God that's more like friends with benefits. We don't want to be married to God. Friends with benefits is I get all the benefits I want from you. I have no devotion or commitment to you. I'm going to not be exclusive with you. In addition, we like to say, well, you know, I've got other things and other people in my life that are a priority to me. If I find someone I enjoy more, I'm going to dump you because I'm not committed and covenanted to you. You're just convenience to me. So what God will not allow with you, God will not have a friends with benefits relationship with anyone. He only does covenant. He doesn't do adulterous. You see, we tend to think, oh my gosh, God is so hard. He's got too high of expectations. He's so controlling, so demanding. 
No, 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 that's not it at all. It's that he knows what love is and we don't. Love is exclusive. Love is devoted. Love is sacred. Love is committed. And so what you can't do is look at God and say, okay, God, I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want you to be in all of my life. I don't even want my friends to know that you're in my life. You just sort of stay off to the side. And when I want you, when I need you, I'll call on you to benefit me. And then you can go back to your appropriate place of obscurity. And what happens in our world is that most people, they love the idea that God loves them. Okay, okay, great. God forgives you. God blesses you. Great. God wants exclusive devotion and obedience from you. Uh Uh-uh, uh-uh. No, that's crossing the line there. That's the only kind of relationship that God has. It's one that's akin to marriage. And so what James is saying is that you're either a friend of God and an enemy of the world, or you're a friend of the world and an enemy of God. So right now, you're going to make the most important decision you will ever make, the decision that will affect your every day and your eternal life forever. The question is not, are you in a fight? There is a fight. There is God, there is Satan, there is heaven, there is hell, there is truth, there are lies. And we're born in the middle of that battle. And the question is not, are you in a fight? We're all in the fight. And the decision you've got to make today is, is God your friend or are you the world's friend? And every one of us makes that decision. And if we don't make that decision, we've made a decision. To be an adulterous people, not a covenantal people. That is life hell up. James told us last week again that that kind of life is earthly. Meaning it is devoid of the kingdom of God. It is unspiritual. In other words, it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And it is demonic. But you got to know this. There's an alternative. There is a good news option. And that is living life kingdom down. So James goes on. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? He's saying that God is jealous for the inner you, the truest you, the deepest you. But he gives more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And what James is doing right there, he's quoting from the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 34. So he goes on, he says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting, on judge, sitting in judgment on it. 
There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. That's Jesus, by the way. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So what he's talking about here, this whole idea of kingdom down living, it starts with getting to know who God is. That God is your creator, your maker, your sustainer, your redeemer. And he says that God is jealous and gracious. God is a jealous God. So we already told us that we are adulterous and that God is jealous. So is jealousy a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends. First of all, if if God can be jealous, then obviously there's a possibility that jealousy can be a good and godly thing. Of course, there is also unholy, uh, ungodly jealousy. So godly jealousy is this. God is saying, I made you. So why am I not the priority? God is saying our relationship was supposed to be your first commitment. Then why is someone or something in my place? God gets jealous when anytime someone or something sits at his seat at the head of the table of your life. And what God says says is stop looking at it from your perspective. Start looking at it from my perspective. Stop pulling hell up and putting someone in my seat. Start inviting heaven down and put me in my appropriate place at the head of the table of your life. Now, the good news is God is not only jealous, he is gracious. This is such good news. And if we're honest, we're all guilty of this. Someone or something at some point in our lives has been in God's place at the head of the table of our life. And he said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're proud, you go to God and you say, well, okay, we just disagree. And I think you're wrong, God. (laughs) The Bible is an old book. You've got your opinions, I've got my opinions. You've got your priorities, I've got my priorities. All of that is hell up. Because the dominant motif of hell is pride. Satan fell because of pride. Our culture considers pride a virtue, not a vice, because we are living hell up. Humility is kingdom down. The Bible says that our King Jesus came from heaven to earth that was humble he went from being worshipped to being hated that's humble he went from having an angelic staff to being a carpenter that is humble the bible says that he humbled himself and became a servant he ultimately humbled himself and went to the cross in our place now we all start with pride And then what happens, the Holy Spirit comes and it changes our hearts. So God opposes the proud. If you're proud, you pick a fight with God. No one ever wins that fight. God is undefeated, just so you know. And he gives grace to the humble. 
Now, some of you are about to ask the obvious question. You're thinking it in your mind. Pastor Paul, what are you doing talking about humility? I am demonstrating the depth of God's grace. That's what I'm doing. If a guy like me can talk about humility, then it means that he gives grace. So then what happens when you're humble? You say, God, not my will, your will. God, what are your thoughts? God, what are your desires? And I will submit and surrender myself to your will, trusting that you are good. And when we disagree, I'm wrong, and I will ask for forgiveness. And here's the good news. If you want to do what's right, God will help you do it. You see, if you want to do what God wants you to do, he is very eager to put grace on you to enable you to do it. Then James goes to talk on more about the kingdom down life. He says, first and foremost, he's got a series of commands. Now you need to know, God does not give opinions, suggestions. It's not, you know, the, the 10 opinions of God. It's the 10 commandments of God. When God gives a command, he expects obedience because he is God. He is Lord. Let me say this. There are, there are two kinds of leadership. There is cooperative leadership and there is command leadership. Cooperative leadership is we look at things, we talk about them, we talk them out, we try to work them through, we, we each listen patiently and we come to some reasonable conclusion our God on occasion does this. In Isaiah 1, he says, come, let us reason together. That's cooperative leadership. When your kids get older, your only leadership is, leader, is cooperative leadership. I mean, if they're in their 30s, you can't just spank them. Oh, you can. I mean, it's odd, but... You got to try to talk to them, reason it out. The other kind of leadership is command leadership. Now, I'm not talking about uh, overbearing. I'm not, I'm not talking about it's my way or the highway kind of leadership. This is where there's a sense of urgency. You know, like we don't have time to debate this. You're in harm's way. You need to move. God often uses command leadership. It's like a dad who says, do this, but don't do that. It's like a mom who says, don't touch that. It's hot. You will burn yourself. The reason why they're commanding and maybe even raising their voice is not because they hate you. It's because they love you and they know better than you. God is a father who loves you and knows better than you. So when James says, submit yourself to God, first and foremost, you need to be under authority. But the problem is, most of us don't want to submit to God. We want to replace God on his throne. We want to sit upon it ourselves. I say, I want to be a law to myself. I'm going to judge myself. I only answer to myself. My question to you would be, then why are you such a good candidate? I mean, you have a three-pound brain. 
Most of us went to public universities and we've made a mess of our lives. And I'm not sure anybody could come here today with a resume that would be good enough to say, hey, I'd make a great Lord. He says, submit yourselves to God. But not only that, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise. What he says is this, in this life, there is God and Satan. There is the kingdom down or there is hell up. And we feel this squeeze in our life on earth because it's a constant battle. And what James is saying, not only do you need to submit to God, you need to resist the devil. There will be moments, seasons, times, opportunities in your life when you're going to feel this rush of temptation towards sin, this deep, profound, gravitational pull toward a a lie or toward bitterness, which is from the culture of hell, not forgiveness, which is the culture of heaven. Or you're going to feel like, you know what? I'm just going to be independent, not dependent upon God. And when those moments happen, you need to know that this is an occasion of spiritual warfare. These moments are when Satan and the demonic forces want to go after you and surround you. And spiritual warfare in this moment is resisting the devil and submitting to the Lord. This is what happened to the Lord Jesus in Luke 4. Satan attacked him and he was absolutely under assault. Jesus resisted the devil and he submitted himself to the Father. And then it says in Luke that the devil departed from him until a more opportune time. Meaning the attack will come in a flood. If you hold your ground, he will leave, but he will look for another opportunity to return. And that's just your life. It's a, it's a series of intense seasons. And when they come, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. I mean, look, they happen to Jesus Christ. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see, it's not enough just to run from sin. You got to run to God. And we do that by Bible reading and by praying and by worship. You're doing it right now. As you've gathered together as God's people. So you and I submit ourselves to God. We draw near to him. The question is, if I do that, how will he respond? Some of you, As we talk about these things, you're consciously aware of your own shortcomings and failures. You're like, I've done adultery. I've done friends with benefits. I've been prideful. I've been independent. I've been a friend with the world. You're guilty. And you come to the conclusion. You come to the conviction. I'm guilty. Now what? If I turn to him, is he going to turn to me? And this is the Bible's language for a word that's very significant. It's called repentance. Repentance is, I had my face toward the world, and I turn it, and now I'm facing the Lord. And as soon as you turn, guess what? He's right there. 
It says, if you will draw near to the Lord, if you will turn to the Lord, the Lord will never turn his back on you who turn toward him. Some of you wonder, but have I gone too far? No. You turn around. He's been following you. He's right there. But, but you don't know what all I've done in my life. You're right. And it's worse than you think. But that's why Jesus needed to die. Your problem is so big that God had to take care of it. You have a God-sized problem that you made. And then James closes with this. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the only one who is able to save and destroy. What he says is Jesus Christ is the one who can save and destroy. He destroys hell and he saves you for the kingdom of heaven. You see, the great, grand, glorious news is that our king came from heaven. He came down. Our God, Jesus Christ, lived on this earth without any sin, so he was altogether pure. He submitted himself to the Father continuously. He resisted the devil perfectly. And what he did was then take our place on the cross and put us in his place. And on the cross, Jesus took on death so we can receive life. He endured wrath so we can receive grace. He was rejected so we can be accepted. He tasted hell so that he could open up heaven to you. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.